0: Welcome to Sen Apprentice episode two. I am Ken and uh, back with me for our second episode is Anthony. Anthony, tell uh, the listening world hello. Hello world. See that once was, again. There you go, just launch right just in there. Just go right into it, head first. Yeah, we've we've got so much today to talk about that we're just going to dive right in. I'm not going to tell any stories. I'm not going to oh, talk yeah. about things that don't matter. Well, I to go deep into our backstories. Uh, nope. I'm not going to okay. go into the fact that when Clint and I were recording, my new cat came in and just chewed through wires I right in the middle to of talk it. about that, yeah. Well, and people will hear it because we're just leaving it on that recording. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, it should be a good time. But today, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of things. First, we're going to talk about the latest entry in the MCU, The Eternals, uh, which is getting quite a bit of love and hate. Oh, God. Interestingly, I this is probably one of the most divisive Marvel movies. Oh, awesome! In Sorry. a long time. No, it's okay. <laughs> I have a thirst then for chaos. we're gonna talk about uh, your assignments from last episode: David Fincher's Seven and Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Very excited to talk about those. And then, if we have time, if it's not running too long, Anthony and I just went to the theater and watched uh, Denis Villeneuve's uh, Dune. I highly recommend it. And me. this is I this is Dune. Anthony's first uh I- exposure to dune in any way so cool. i've watched so the, cool. the lynch version i've read the book i have watched the uh the documentary about jodorowsky's dune and honestly this is the I, the fifth time i've watched this new dune and so that should be a fun conversation uh i'm also going to hear before next week anthony is or not next week next episode anthony is going to watch jodorowsky's dune, dune and then yep. we'll probably talk about dune a little more so it it should be a good time and I don't think he is prepared the cinema for what is that just, will be. He's setting the pieces in place. There you go. It's, it's doing something genius I, I don't see know it. about yet.
1: I see it. He sees the future. I
0: have vision. So um, let's start with the Eternals. <laughs> The Eternals is the, I don't know, 26th, 27th entry in the MCU at this point. It follows hot on the heels of Shang-Chi. And that's not Uh, if you count the shows. That's true. (laughs) That's true. Anthony and I (laughs) I talked about Shang-Chi last time. And uh, while it's enjoyable, I think Mm -hmm. we both kind of agreed it, it uh, it was a decent first entry, but it has its share of problems. So when you came to The Eternals... Going into why, just just kind of blanket opener, did you enjoy The Eternals more than Shang-Chi or did you enjoy Shang-Chi more than The Eternals? Ooh, dramatic pause. It's a tough question. That's a broad question. It really is because they are two very different movies. I think I enjoyed The Eternals slightly more. Slightly more. I will tell you right off the bat, I enjoyed The Eternals much more than Shang-Chi. Not from the, I guess enjoy is the wrong word. Shang-Chi is definitely the more traditionally entertaining film. You appreciated Eternals more. I appreciated Eternals more. I thought Eternals was more ambitious. I think it was tackling more and trying to accomplish more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether whether it succeeded or failed, it just, as a cinematic experience, the Eternals was much more rewarding for me than Shang-Chi. There was a lot more surprise <laughs> For some than great Eternals. reasons we'll get into. So, ah, so let's start there. Please. What is it? Let's start with what you liked about Eternals. Okay. What did Eternals do uh, that kind of upped the MCU game? So here's the number one thing that I think I appreciate
1: about Eternals. You have the idea... You specifically have the idea mm-hmm. that Marvel is humans that sort of get the powers of gods and yes. deal with the human problems, while well, the DC is the gods who become more human. Yes. This feels more like gods who become more human. And that alone is fascinating to me, that they just do the switcheroo between yeah. Marvel and DC. And that is kind of what sold me on actually going to watch it.
0: Okay, interesting. What is it about the gods becoming more human that, that interests you or that... that- Get your get your fancy so much.
1: Just that, Marvel hasn't quite done that. Maybe with Thor, Mm -hmm. but that's about it. Yeah, and see
0: this one, I I would compare this one to Thor too, because while I agree with you, this is definitely more in that DC vein than Marvel is. I think it's still fundamentally these characters are flawed from the get go. Yes, they're seen as gods, but just like the the characters in Thor, when we first meet Thor, whether you like that movie or not, when we first meet Thor, he's very flawed. He's getting essentially kicked out of of uh, heaven, uh, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's kind of the fallen son for that entire movie. And for The Eternals, I, I felt like when it opens, so much of it is about this team that has been split apart by conflict and things like that. Um, while, while I understand chronologically, the movie starts with them more godlike, as far as the movie goes, we're introduced to very flawed yes. characters. I mean,
1: essentially, I mean, I, I guess if you look at it from that way, essentially they are humans in the way that they think. Maybe the celestial's just stupid. Maybe Arisham <laughs> just doesn't Maybe. know what he's doing. I, um, I
0: like that they were flawed because the idea that they've been influencing culture and things like that, it <laughs> would suggest that people would take on the characteristics of these oh these creatures or these entities that that have influenced them and so they see humanity power and they want to imitate it yeah so they
1: imitate it in every way they can yeah
0: and there's not as much of a drive to cover up their flaws I think that's one of the mistakes the eternals are making at one point they say mm. you know well we can't take uh, their will away from them because if they're not flawed they're not human but the eternals are very flawed I thought about that one and they're they said kind that. of blind to it. And so you have you have humanity. I, I wonder if it becomes humanity the way it does in the MCU because there's such a almost parent-child relationship between the Eternals and humanity. Hmm. So you think DC is more
1: both sides are perfect even when they do fight? Every person that is perfect
0: is just... Not perfect. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, kind of your, your heavy hitters. When you have Superman, Superman from the beginning is presented as this uh, all-American hero uh, who, as all shucks as he can be, he is essentially the ideal version of, uh, of a human being. He's nice. He's kind. He's helpful. He has no ulterior motives. He has no selfishness. He just wants to be a hero. And, and it's it's very one note in that. You don't now, – now, later on, yeah. uh, different writers have really gone in and played with that much more. But originally, Superman, uh, Wonder Woman, these characters that have these immense powers mm. Are, mm. are very inhuman. Whereas right. then your Batmans, your Green Lanterns, things like that, even though they're granted power, they're coming from a place that they were already human, even the Flash – Barry was already human for, for most of his life, and then he got these powers. And I'm
1: wondering if that has to do with um, the time period that they came out. Because a lot of DC's yeah. heroes came out in the 40s and 50s. Marvel wasn't thing until the 60s, so they're closer to the Silver Age. So naturally, their characters aren't suited to be uh, idols yeah. for these soldiers coming back from World War II. Yeah.
0: But Captain America, of course, is the exception of that. Yeah. So, of course, he's
1: just like Superman in terms of his attitude about life.
0: Yeah. But even Captain America, what do they do with him? They freeze him, and he's waking up man out of time. So they're even recognizing in the the basis of that story that, you know, what you would have been during World War II is very different than what you need to be to survive the the modern age, uh, whatever that modern age is. What was your favorite thing about the Eternals? i really enjoyed the structure of it i like that i've I've heard a lot of people complaining that there's too many characters to get to know and i thought this movie had a a, an ingenious structure in that you start with them largely split you you get to see them a little bit in flashbacks all together but for the most part when you're getting to the modern day you understand intuitively this family has has had a rift And they have broken apart. And then the way the story works, they basically go one or two Eternals at a time. Uh, They go – essentially it's a road movie where they go recruiting all their old pals. (laughs) Family road trip. Yeah, yeah, but you get to meet characters one at a time. I think what's really – I don't know if it's genius
1: or lucky, but they exist all throughout humanity's lifetime. So you can put this group of people – in. Any time period or any situation or any event in history that happened to perfectly show off each of their differences. Yeah. And they kinda do. Yeah. The first thing you learn about Druig is how he just he's the first one to disagree with the fundamental
0: ideology of the Eternals. Which makes total sense because he has the power to control minds. And he's he's more than any of them. He barely has to lift a finger. He could stop all conflict. He even articulates that at one point. So it makes total sense that he would be the one that would I think it have on two points. Yeah, I think but, it's two but points. he the fact that he's the one that that really brings that out first makes sense because he's the one that has the mm-hmm. most easy road to 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 flipping that switch and making everybody get along. They made each character unique. Yeah,
1: I didn't really like Cersei as much. He was kind of. I don't know of what the... they're doing these days with the main characters being such a. Mo- an unfinished mold, it just feels so empty for them, but the rest of the characters you know, I, I loved how they each stood out in their very own unique way you could really, even though they don't actually give a lot of time for you to get to know mm-hmm. them. They just give you the fundamental stuff, but because they're so different, they can be compared to each other, and it feels like you
0: know them better that way. So the Cersei problem is actually a very, very old film problem, and the more you watch, the more you'll see this. And those characters are referred to as as your everyman or your human proxy. Mm. They exist in the story to ex- exposit, to basically... Uh, have somebody that you, the blank audience member, can attach to and learn information through. And so it's stupid, but the way that Hollywood has always done that is by making it a very blank character. It's the same thing video games do when they have a faceless protagonist, uh, you know, so that yeah. you can kind of uh, attach to them in whatever way uh, they, they relate. Uh, the first Thor movie. It's essentially about space gods, but mm. what do they do? They cram in Natalie Portman and and the doctors and all this stuff and it. it's all on earth for the most part because the fear was especially at the time if we take this and go crazy in space Ragnarok style, people are going to check out. They're just not going to follow it. Yeah, then Ragnarok flopped. We know how that did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was even Guardians now, in retrospect, why, you know, why was anybody worried about that? Guardians, they were really worried about. That was a big risk for them because it's all in space except for the first two minutes. All weird characters, talking tree, talking raccoon. You know, Even then, what do they still have? They have Star-Lord, this kid from the 80s who is our human proxy. He is the one that, that we can relate to because he looks like us. He thinks like us. He comes from a time but- period like us. And we, we are introduced to everything in that world through his eyes.
1: I feel like Peter has a bit more distinct personality yes. to him than a lot of other characters like this, like For sure. Shang-Chi. Um, he just, they highlight – and it's not impossible to make an audience empathize with a character and make them you know, very unique and distinct. Mm-hmm. You just have to give them something that everything everyone can relate to, mm-hmm. whether it's just a, a broad thing, like an insecurity. Everyone has an insecurity. You don't have to go and make it a, a blank face, a white mask, you know?
0: Yeah, but even look what they did with Shang-Chi. They have to come up with a reason in the story that he's been away from home for 10 years and he's a normal guy for 10 years. And that's when you meet him so that when you go into this uh you know martial arts organization and ultimately this mystical land who are you following the normal guy the parking valet and they they even do it there and i think it, honestly i think it does work a little bit better with shang chi too mm-hmm. because his whole thing is that he wants to be a normal guy yeah, yeah. well and that's why i think that bus scene in shang works so well because you're you're getting uh you're right there with katie realizing whoa who are you And where did this come from? And because she even says before he busts out fighting, he can't fight. What do you want with him? Hmm. And then he completely (laughs) breaks her paradigm. It works in that case because in that case, it's turning on its head. We're tricked into thinking that he's a human proxy. And then in one move, we realize, oh, no, he's something else. He's already got all the skills. Uh, that that other movies we would have watched him have to pick up or learn. I, I agree with you on the Cersei thing, um, but I, I liked uh, where where it reveals its real villain, which I don't want to spoil mm-hmm. here, but it 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 just went in interesting directions. And then on top of that, Space Gods. I've been saying that since <laughs> the first trailer for this movie. Space Gods. Space Gods. Uh, that- I love when the MCU gets weird, and I don't know that the MCU has gotten weirder than the last half hour of this movie. It goes, uh, it, not in tone, but just in what's happening, it, it goes a little bonkers. What an ending. Yeah. Just, yeah. not even the last half hour, just the last 10, 15 yeah. minutes of this. Now, uh, you mentioned coming out of the theater something I wanted to ask you about. Sure. When we were coming out of the theater, you said how much you liked the humor in Eternals, mm-hmm. even though it's it's much more minimal than other MCU films. And I believe you said it was because when it's sporadic, when it just suddenly pops up, you find it funnier than when it's strung throughout the whole thing.
1: The overtone of the movie is pretty serious compared mm-hmm. to Shang-Chi. And so those that humor is kind of perfectly timed to break that tension that you're feeling from that sort of darker overtone that they have. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the characters that they choose to do it with are amazing. That... Um, what is he like? His producer or something with the camera oh, the whole yeah. time. Um, he is an Karan angel.
0: Or I forget what his name is.
1: The fact that he's so nice makes him that much funnier. Yeah, he's yeah. just such a nice guy. Yeah, he even even when Eternal. they're debating whether to <laughs> <laughs>
0: the human guy, uh, even even when debating whether to save mankind or not, this poor regular <laughs> human in the room is just like, well, thank you so much for considering us. <laughs> <laughs> I might be a little biased, but I would (laughs) like
1: the Earth to remain. Yeah. Now, do you think think
0: this would have worked better as as like a six-episode MCU series on Disney Plus? No. No?
1: No. Not with how they did it. I just... Mostly because I don't know how you split it up like that. Yeah, I I I mean, it definitely would have had to be The movie flows really well. Yeah. And so I think if
0: you break it up into episodes, you break that flow. Yeah. I appreciated when they would do flashbacks, they were the flashbacks to ancient times were just long enough and involved enough to tell you what you needed to know in present i didn't feel like they were doing there is one extended flashback that goes on for quite a while but it's giving you the information you need for the present day story i think when they do it the best is when they're talking about fastos the inventor Mm -hmm. and they're saying well let's you know now we got to go find fastos and somebody says oh he's you know, last time we left him, he is not real thrilled with humanity. And then there's just this <laughs> great oh, one geez. minute flash to Hiroshima. Hiroshima. And and that's all we see of that, but that's all you need to see because you're watching this guy who has given humans technology. He's, and the he's inventor. standing in the rubble. He's, he's the
1: inventor. He's assisting humanity with their technology. Yeah. And look where the technology has brought he's, them. He's standing in him. the
0: rubble of the, the absolute worst moment. In our history, when it comes to what we did with technology, mm-hmm. and he just breaks down, and it's such a simple scene, but I immediately love that character. Flash forward to you know two seconds later, and you're seeing him in modern day. He has worked through that how because now he has a family. Uh, you know, he has a husband, he has a kid, and and that was such a touching contrast to me that it the went first from, uh, actual gay mm-hmm. character. Yeah. In uh, the MCU, yeah. I don't
1: know if that character had a name in Endgame, but
0: but no, that's just yeah. is it. Well, and that's that's something I, I also appreciated where, and, and this is, I think, important going forward, they they drew no attention to it. No. It just was. It was
1: just a thing, and that's how it, it just was.
0: Be. It was just part of his character, mm. and it wasn't a moment where the movie needed to step aside and make some comment or make some sort of statement. It just, here's our characters. They took an they took they learned a lesson from mm-hmm. what Endgame did. Yeah. Girls
1: get it done isn't how you do it. No. Because if you draw attention to it, people will
0: think it's more serious than it is. Yeah. But it if, feels if you forced. make
1: it feel more normal, mm-hmm.
0: people will accept it more. Yeah. So so I appreciated that too. And and that was largely true of all the characters. I felt like aside from Cersei, definitely agree with mm-hmm. you. And and even then they try to cram in these character points for her, like she's late all the time. It's, that's not a characteristic okay, yeah exactly it's just like it it was such a weird like look we're making her flawed are you? Does, do those flaws have any place in the story? no she's just late that doesn't make her more interesting uh, and so you know by the end of it it's like okay she basically just served the function as somebody who needs to turn matter from one thing to another thing mm-hmm. um Whereas I thought I thought where they were going there as far as how they were going to deal with the ending when they were going to use Druid to do it was a much more interesting uh, kind of character arc mm-hmm. than when they used Cersei.
1: Um, and you can almost see points of it uh, of her struggling with being the new leader. Yeah. But, I mean, they dropped it as soon as they said, as soon as um, Icarus said, she's the new leader, you should have her decide. Yeah. After that, it was... Nothing, but, yeah. I mean, you never even get much about Ajax, the original leader, to really compare her leadership skills, and that could have easily yeah. been her arc. It wouldn't have been hard to put it in there. Yeah. You could have just put some words here and there and just keep the plot exactly the same, but,
0: yeah. I don't know, that would have even added five minutes. something where <laughs> Cersei was always supposed to be the next leader and Ajax was going to essentially teach her and graduate her to that, but had never gotten to that.
1: Although I think it's interesting with Icarus how everyone kind of views him. Because mm, he sh- he's the strongest. He should have been the next leader. Yeah. And with how he feels about the events, mm-hmm. he's almost the perfect eternal in Arishtram's eyes. Mm-hmm. And that almost reinforces the idea that he would have been a better eternal, quote unquote, mm-hmm. but not really a better person.
0: Yeah. Cersei is the better leader that the that the events in the movie needs, that humanity needs. Icarus is definitely the better eternal, Icarus is much more on page with kind of classic Ajax than uh, than any of the other ones.
1: And honestly, uh, I think Icarus was the most fascinating part about yeah, Cersei, I their relationship, agree. and
0: yeah. yeah. I I like that when it does come to its ultimate confrontation, they're all over the place. You've got some people picking humanity, you've got some people picking Erisham, uh, and then you've got uh, what's his name. Uh, no. Well, Sprite has her own kind of motivations, but um. What's uh, the actor's name? Hollywood guy? Yes. Or Bollywood guy? Bollywood guy. Anyway, he chooses neutrality. And I love that they. It's frustrating for that character to watch that character check out, so to speak. But I love that they still had somebody like, you know what? Here's who I agree with, but I'm not going to fight you guys. And so I'm just going to be Switzerland. And And it's so perfect. They put it such a
1: great place after. The stuff with that other eternal that we will not mention because <laughs> of spoilery reasons
0: yeah. uh it just highlights the sort of extremism yeah uh, of divide yeah and and i appreciated that it was almost like humanity had rubbed off on them more mm-hmm. than or equal to how much they had rubbed off on humanity all that's to say that's that's the sort of stuff i liked i liked the ambition i don't think this movie does the best by its different ambitions but it does pretty good Mm -hmm. i certainly don't think it it deserves to be the worst reviewed mcu no no not at all honestly if it did not
1: have the celestial stuff the crazy Mm -hmm. space stuff and maybe maybe the first thor the people that made the first thor almost had a point with people wouldn't be able to handle this if it had not had the celestial stuff Personally, I don't think I'd like it more than shang Yeah. Objectively, <laughs> it's not amazing. Yeah. But personally,
0: that celestial stuff just has me geeking out in the theater. Yeah. You saw me look at you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm such a such a sucker for scale. I love mm. when big things big things are up <sighs> against tiny things. I love Dune. That's that's one of the things not to jump ahead. But I love the scale in Dune. Um. I search and search. For a good Cthulhu game, yep. Just whenever
1: I can, because like seeing him come out of the water and just tower over the world, that's incredible to me. I don't know what it is about a big thing that makes me feel awe, but big things are cool.
0: Yeah, they're cool <laughs> and they're scary at the same time because you realize suddenly just by their size, they have that power. You realize how small you are, mm-hmm. and it 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 conveys this feeling of helplessness. I love in Dune when. Uh, The Atreides soldiers rush out as these ships are coming down and attacking their fleet on the ground. And just the scale of these tiny little humans looking up at just (laughs) utter planetary destruction. Those ships are huge too. Yeah. It's, it's, It's just such a feeling of palpable despair. And it it works, and and man, I love that we're at a place in movies where they do that kind of thing. Not that it's new. Empire Strikes Back, you know, there's the hey, uh, yeah, Star Destroyers are already big. How about uh, I don't know, just call it a super Star Destroyer.
1: <laughs> and that is huge too. It <laughs> is. Like it is really big. I think yeah. a single Star Destroyer is like a third, a fourth of that size. It's,
0: it's actually the the small Star Destroyers, I believe, dock into. Like, TIE Fighters dock into the Star Destroyers. The Star Destroyers dock into the Super Star Destroyer. Yeah, it's much, much bigger. And
1: and it even looks like a city on a... Yeah. It's so cool.
0: I just... I'm such a geek for scale. So, yeah, uh, Eternals, I I definitely think that that people should check it out, and they shouldn't go in super hesitant.
1: And I just... It's it's sort of a quick civil war. I love how the ideologies... Like, they just have these ideologies, and they just conflict, and none of them really want to, you know, do anything... To hurt each other But yeah. sometimes they have to For your yeah. viewpoints Speaking of Very violent viewpoints Seven
0: That was a great segue Well done Thank You're, you I've been working I like on that. It. that was good I, I was, was on mine that. now. I like it uh, Steal them from me It's good I am So let's talk about David Fincher's seven 7 is about two detectives, one who is just coming into uh, this inner city uh, homicide division, played by Brad Pitt, and the other is, is kind of the old wise and grizzled detective that's on his way out. He's retiring in, I think, a week, uh, maybe two weeks, played by Morgan Freeman. And they, they catch a, a serial killer case. They know nothing about the killer. They just know that he is slowly but surely working through the seven deadly sins in the Bible. And he's killing people he's identifying as, as sinners. And uh, it's, it's just a, a procedural. It's a classic detective story, uh, but definitely done with Venture's uh, with unique worldview and style. Anthony, uh, this is a film from 1995. What did you think of Seven? Four. 94? And 94.
1: It says on the case, Kenny. on it. I know.
0: Just getting it all wrong.
1: Um, I'm not going to say young Morgan Freeman.
0: Younger. It, younger Morgan Freeman. I mean, this is still like 30 years ago.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost 22. It's like 28 years ago. It's even weird for me to
1: feel that the 90s was that long ago. It,
0: well, that actually makes me happy. Did this feel like a movie that's 28 years old to you? No. In any but, way?
1: Uh they did stylize it to make it feel even older than that yeah. i don't know if you had a side at all but i love that it almost felt noir in that way yeah. this is
0: my probably my favorite movie of all the ones you've had me watch so far awesome. this this is in my i think top 10 of all time really? it's 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 long been one of these movies that are just such a standout they're, they're relatively simple but so masterful in execution what's in the box yeah <laughs> a good movie a really good movie yeah, really good movie
1: i am a sucker for deep talk Mm -hmm. with people and i love symbolism in Mm -hmm. anything and everything so this movie just hit all those right spots for me you can you can think about this movie for hours about the symbolism of everything in it and then there's still more to think about i mean just with you know my favorite thing to think about is you described fincher in a certain way last week cynical yeah cynical, and he has a very, has a very
0: cynical. cynical view of
1: of mankind and but and, almost a realistic cynicism, yeah and just thinking about it like that, the older detective played by Morgan Freeman, that is yeah David Fincher, and he just that detective Somerset, he represents reality, mm-hmm. I think um, the younger detective Mills, I want to say mm-hmm. he represents the hopeful side of it the hopeful reality and then john doe is just a complete breakdown of reality he's
0: a force of nature he doesn't exist to be a character he exists to be this thing and he chooses that that tests yes he chooses that but even down to he is he is without identity he has erased his fingerprints he has taken on his mission as his entire identity
1: and what i see in him like as a person. I see him as someone who was deeply disturbed by reality and just could not find the bright side. And so his coping mechanism was to become nobody and become that force of nature to make others like him almost a lot like the Joker.
0: Yep. He sees injustice in the world and nothing's taking care of it. And so he takes it on himself to undertake this holy mission and to go out for God and and eliminate uh, the the sin in the world because he doesn't see anybody else taking care of it. And he certainly doesn't have any confidence in the police taking care of that. What I love, those, I'm sorry, I'm skipping right to the end, but this is no, something I love about this movie. This movie, 28 years old, uh, just spoiler warning, but if timeless, you haven't seen though. Seven, uh, shut the episode off and go watch it. Yeah, Seven, really, Because we're about to spoil after. it because you should know. Pick go up on. right off.
1: Even down to those last moments, mm-hmm. When he's holding the gun right in front of him i love it i think even david fincher as cynical as he is can almost see that brighter side prevailing mm-hmm. but ultimately that darker side of his mind that takes over and so of course even though he has that choice and he's so close to doing the right thing and proving this john doe wrong He pulls the trigger anyways, and John Doe wins.
0: Yeah, and we were talking about proxy earlier. I I think that Morgan Freeman's character is Venture's proxy. And here he is, and he believes in good. You can tell from his conversations with Mill's wife, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, Mm. he believes in good. He believes there are good things out there. He's just seen too much dark. He's seen too much darkness in himself. But when confronted with it at the end, he's saying, you don't have to do this. You don't have to become the inherent wrath. evil in the world. You don't have to become wrath. There's a higher path here. And, you and know he that. really believes it. And he knows that Mills is capable of pulling that trigger, but he really believes. You can see it all over his face. He really believes he can talk him down and save this man from his consequences.
1: And that's fascinating. The whole movie, Somerset is the cynic of the duo. yeah. But I guess Mills just inspires him so much that he believes in Mills and yeah. he believes that he can be better like he wants to be. Yeah. And that's fascinating. And I really do think Mills is supposed to be the embodiment of good Mm -hmm. in this movie. And John Doe being evil, of course. Um, From the very start of this movie, Mills says, one of his first lines is, I want to do some good. I want to make a good difference in this place. And, you know, that's just... And he believes That's ringing the bell. He does. He's
0: not being, uh, you know... uh, He's not trying to suck up to his boss. He's not trying to win points. He really believes, I wanted to sign to the toughest place because I believe I can do some good. What was your favorite thing about this movie? So, I mean, Fincher... I know, it's a broad question, but... I know, but but Fincher is such a filmmaking genius. He does things with light, shadow, color, and Every detail, and I can appreciate that. Every detail. Now, Fincher, I was telling you, Fincher is notorious for take after take after take, sometimes 30, 40 takes for one shot or one scene. The, he's he's such a perfectionist. And the thing is that only really works with his
1: style. Yeah. His style of just showing the most raw part of humanity that he
0: can of course what he does is try to make these actors act raw yeah there's there's also something about his camera he is such a good storyteller there's a scene early on where it's just (sighs) this scene in an office in the in the police station where it's mills it's somerset and it's the the captain uh, of the Division. and They're all sitting at these three desks. Mills, though, or excuse me, Somerset is standing up. Morgan Freeman's standing up, and he's explaining what he's figured out about the killer, that the killer is following, uh, you know, this pattern of the seven deadly sins and all of this. And there's so much packed into that. The camera moves right where it needs to move. Even when he introduces the concept of wrath, when he's rattling off the sins, the camera is suddenly on Mills. and And the oh. camera is telling you... Everything that's going to happen, even though you just think it's the scene of exposition.
1: That's so cool.
0: And then the captain sitting there, the phone rings randomly. He just picks up the phone. He's like, this isn't my desk anyway, and hangs it up. It's such a real touch moment. Doesn't need to be there at all. What's it there for? It's there because they're in the middle of this busy office. This is not the only case. This is the real world. And, And Fincher is juggling all of this in one simplistic scene that that really at the end of the day is just explaining to you the audience what the plot is but but he's doing it in a way that makes everything about this feel real and grounded and he guides your eye and your attention to exactly what you need to know in the moment even though the city is practically the embodiment of hell, like how does it get that bad? This is truly the underside. It's literally without light, even during the day. It's raining. It's it's constantly the sun is never shining until the end uh, when they have to leave the city and they have to go out into nature to deal with this ultimate confrontation. That's the only time that they get light. Everything else, it's artificial light. It's it's veiled light. It's light behind clouds. So, street lights. It's so grubby. Yeah. Artificial light is
1: so—it's so annoying to mm-hmm. the eyes, and so that's just another thing. No wonder these people are so irritated. It's raining all the time, you know. They don't get any sunlight. Yeah. They don't get any vitamin D.
0: Fincher is one. I, I think what I love about his films is he does very obvious things in very not so obvious ways, uh, like that. That's such a base symbol—the idea that there's no light in this city. But he does it by reflecting on noir film and by reflecting on uh, just beautiful cinematography and all these things. So he's dealing with something that on its surface should be just this really corny, stupidly simple kindergarten level symbol. Yeah,
1: you'd find a children's book, but he does feel much of it. He's doing it at such a higher level. Yeah. Um, Because it always – you can do as much symbolism as you want, but if it doesn't aid – the tone, correct the story. It
0: doesn't matter, and people laugh at that. Yeah, well, and I, I think that's what Fincher does the best. I think that's part of the. Not only does he shoot sometimes thirty, forty takes. But in the editing room, he has such control over the film. And in, and if you ever watch any documentaries or anything like that, any behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, everybody that talks about him talks about how he already sees the final cut of the movie before he's even shooting it. He goes it. in with a plan. I he can has always a appreciate plan, that, and that then vision. he's even remembering shots, and he's like, I'm going to use that take. I'm going to use this. I'm going to use that. By the time sh- the shooting is done – uh, he already knows what the movie's going to look like and he's one of the rare directors that don't need reshoots most of the time.
1: This movie is dark by the way. <laughs> it really is. It's, I mean obviously literally like we just talked yeah. about but it's just it almost made me sick. I almost wanted to turn it off at some yeah. points but to see where the story was going was what kept me going especially with that club. Yeah. That really freaked me out. And it builds to that. It because, does. Because you're getting You made this for him? They yeah. see the photograph of it. You don't see it.
0: Yeah. You can only imagine and it's worse than whatever you could have imagined. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where uh, you know, even in the things where he shows a lot, he's still even, you know, probably the most grotesque is is the guy on the bed mm. who still that's turns out to, to still be alive. But oh, then boy. you just get these Polaroids of the weeks and weeks and weeks this has been happening. That Not a year. you don't see it, but in your mind you based know, based on his state
1: now, you can yep. imagine Everything that's happened yep. to him, what I think the f- part that freaked me out the most was his hand, yeah, seeing how
0: his Sold hand off. was put back together. That, yeah, Ugh. and that's so, so suddenly, in just a few seconds, you have a year worth of storytelling crammed into your mind, and that's where Jeez. Fincher excels. And he did the same thing in social network, you know. Uh, this, I think, is a, is a much, uh, this is this is my favorite of Fincher's films. It's early, but I think this is him at his most um, focused. Uh, I really feel like not only does he have a good story to tell, but he has something to say with it. And and it's it clips along. It's not too long. It's not too short. It's just in this neat little center where it keeps twisting on you. I'm so glad he gave me these movies in this order because <laughs> even though
1: they came out. Uh, seven was twenty years before social mm-hmm. network, give or take. And but you you gave me uh, like a, a small drip mm-hmm. of this dude's mind, and then you know with seven, it's just the whole thing. Yeah, he. I
0: bet. I bet he just embodies his view of the world in this movie. I, I think so. I think this is he had done other movies before this one, but this is really, I think, his introduction, or uh, if you go back kind of the, the the crypto key, the thing that tells you how to interpret everything that comes oh, after it. It's the stone tablet that yes. explains the yeah. world. It, it's the thing that explains everything. It gives you the lens. To look at everything else. And that's that's why I gave it to you in this order. I gave you essentially his most recent film, or one of his most recent films, and one of his earliest films. And I gave it to you out of order uh, specifically so now, anytime you watch a Fincher movie, which Fincher is fantastic. I don't think he's made it already. a bad movie. I, <laughs> but but those two bookends can help you interpret every other movie he's ever done.
1: If he, just, if he keeps up with the symbolism, Kenny, I am a fan, because <laughs> it just... This is what I excel in. I love looking at all the symbolism. And then you could even interpret the whole city, the whole story as just a painting of his mind. Yeah. That is so fascinating. I would go as far to say as each one of these characters, these three primary characters, are different parts of his mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, – there's there's all kinds of really fascinating dissection of that online if you ever want to read about it. Oh, uh, there's to. even people that, that will argue over which character is the id, the ego, the superego. Oh, that's cool. Are they cool. embodying all of them? Are they different things at different times? There are entire. I say yes to all of it. Yeah, there are entire name dissections. Uh, Somerset, you know, he's at the end. The sun is setting. Mills, he is. He is the factory that has to process all that comes through, (sighs) and and he's the mill uh, that's that's taking, uh, you know, essentially. Um, this raw material and turning it into something or that's his intent you have john doe which is a name that is the most synonymous with just being completely a blank slate and then pitting those forces against each other it's the same almost archetypal thing that christopher nolan does in the dark knight with the joker and two-face and batman it's this idea of justice chaos and chance and and these three forces just trying to carve out their own corners of the world and they're at war with each other. But the trick is
1: learning how to make it feel like it has purpose yep. and impact. Yep. And he does that so well. A lot of movies will play around with ideas, but he goes all in on his direct vision, and I, I really appreciate that kind of stuff.
0: Yep. And that's any you come to a Fincher movie, it, you almost buckle in and like, okay, doesn't matter if this is my view, doesn't matter if this is my thing, doesn't mm-hmm. matter if this is how I see the world – introduce me like take me on a ride you you have control of everything show me what you want to show me and there's something really freeing to go and watch an artist's film and to see such a meticulously crafted piece of art this movie is a just a deep conversation, off, you
1: know, next to a cliff with David mm-hmm. Fincher. Yeah, yeah. And I know that's what you particularly love about
0: movies mm-hmm. when you think about it on a deeper level, just getting to know the person that made it. Yeah. And that's something, what's The Eternals about? The Eternals is about, is mankind worth saving? What's Seven about? Is mankind worth saving? They're, they're <sighs> essentially dealing with the same question. Now think about how different those two movies are but they're still at the end of the day dealing with the same thing. And and that's it's it's one of those I I've often wondered how many questions you could boil human existence down to. But do this mean? is definitely one of them. Are we worth it? And mm. you will see that time and time and time again in movies uh where where really the the primary conflict is between the main character or main characters and are we worth it. And then they have to decide whether to you know, go the way of the angels or go the way of, of demons. And, and they're, they're basically deciding between good and evil. And so here's where we get to the deeper stuff. Who do you agree with
1: of the characters in this movie? Personally? Yep. Oh, I right. want to know the personal stuff.
0: This is here's the better question. Okay. Would you have pulled the trigger? <clears throat> I would have. I'll tell you right off the bat. There is no version of me that would survive that test. I would pull that trigger. I would go through all the same. I love Brad Pitt's performance there. You can just see all over his face going through all these oh, different yeah. emotions. And they're so strong, you can't feel any of them at the same time. So he's just rapid firing through them. And then he gets a couple of flashes of his wife's face, pulls the trigger. Uh, 100%. Regardless of my worldview or what I want to think of myself as is, is upstanding or, or moral mm-hmm. or all those things, I really believe at the end of the day, confronted with that exact choice, I would have pulled the trigger.
1: I've thought about it. I don't think I've thought about it enough. But I don't know. It's a tough one because it's easy to say I wouldn't mm-hmm. because of my worldview. But then you go and you think about he just lost Everything. everything he has no reason not to pull that trigger. His worldview
0: no longer exists. No. Everything he was living for and working
1: for is in bad. a way he becomes the next John Doe, yeah, and that's fascinating. But I don't know, <laughs> I've, I really don't know. I if you, I lost everything like that, uh, so the thing about me is I'm really stupid, <laughs> <laughs> and so even at my own expense, I kinda hold up my worldview. Um I do some dumb stuff in the name of morality sometimes. That's you know, everyone tells me, Yeah, you're stupid for that. You could have had any harmful thing done for you. But like um Rat Catcher Two and the Suicide Squad, I would die if it meant love. You know what I mean? And that's how I like to view myself. But I don't know if that's actually who I am. But, you know, I'm constantly being tested on that. So with that in mind, no, I wouldn't pull the trigger, be the better person the better symbolism prove this guy wrong but on the other hand if i got pushed to that that cliff
0: i would jump i think yeah i really do think it could go either way the, the the brilliance of fincher to me is that he somehow can help you to understand each of the characters in this situation so let's say i'm not the one with the gun in my hand you are and i'm just somerset i would be making the exact same argument somerset is if i'm the one with the gun i would probably pull the trigger. If I truly believed that the world is is absolute evil and there's no salvation for it and only I am the key to saving it, I would probably do some horrific stuff. Um, you know, it, it it puts you into a place where whether you agree or disagree with any of the characters, even, even the abject evil that is mm-hmm. John Doe. We've
1: all gotten to that point you where we understand. really feel like there's no reason to believe in humanity yeah. anymore. Yeah. We have all been there at least once yep. by the age of say twenty, yep. where you just thought, at least for a
0: moment, that
1: what's what's the damn point? Yeah. You know, and now why, incorporate. Why should I
0: believe? Now incorporate mental illness into that, and you believe <laughs> you're actually hearing from God, and God is actually telling you to do these horrific things, and you actually believe you're going to save humanity by being this instrument of this higher power. Uh, it it uh, again, it's awful, and yeah, I would hope. I would not be that, but you combine all those factors. <laughs> this dude ultimately he's a hypocrite though. Oh sure.
1: He, sure. he is a complete hypocrite. But it's just it's a testament it, I, what I see is a man who has thought so much that he he truly just can't believe anything but what he's thought. He's had so much time yeah. to think that he has every defense against his argument except what it's interesting to me. Mills is such a positive person. I'm sure he's experienced that pain that's what propelled him to be such a great person. And it's interesting to me, he never mentioned how he's a hypocrite for not wanting to become the change that he wants to see in the world. Although in a way he kind of does, but you know what I mean? He Instead of becoming that positive force, he chooses to become what he
0: hates the trap against mills is is much more insidious too because not only is he being faced with you've killed the love of my life then he's being faced with she was pregnant then he's being faced with the fact that mills or that somerset knew and so the the only guy that's talking him down or attempting to talk him down he's just lost trust in because this guy knew that he was going to have a baby and hadn't said anything to him. Hmm. And so it, it it isolates him to the point that he literally has no one that he can listen to. He only has what's inside of himself and what's inside of himself wrath. And that's what he becomes. And even John Doe as as hypocritical as he is, he has enough self-awareness that he reserves that final sin for him because he realizes and recognizes that he's envy. So even though he's this hypocrite, he's still willing to put himself up to the same measure of the victims that he's killed. And he's willing to be a victim because he now represents a sin as well. It's, it's so twisted. And, and, but how does, how does he not realize, how does he not think about how he is just perpetuating what he hates? But he doesn't think that he is the answer. He thinks the story is the answer. That's why he keeps saying this is going to be talked about and written about for decades. He's not interested in being the instrument of God. He's being... So to him, he's making a sacrifice. He's the sacrificial lamb, just like Jesus, that is going to be talked about for thousands of years because he's going to bring to light what humanity actually is. Such
1: a dark way. He really did sacrifice... His own
0: morality for something he thought was greater. And that's, that's why he could do horrific wow. things because he, All in the name of God. <laughs> all in the name of God. But it wasn't just that he was crazy. He also probably felt guilty and, and knew that it was wrong, but he feels like he's sacrificing his own self and his own morals and his own so whatever. He's such a moral person that he's too immoral. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah. That almost, that makes me... Sympathize with the dude that when we talk about it that way.
0: And that's Fincher
1: for oh, you. God, Fincher you. Fincher takes the, me, Fincher.
0: the ugliest characters <laughs> and somehow makes you not like them because he doesn't care if you like anybody. That is, <laughs> that is never his <laughs> intent. You have tell. Morgan Freeman, who is the most likable guy, and he gives him this backstory of this person that he used to be in love with and how he essentially pressured her into having an abortion and because and, he didn't want the kid. And so even this, the, the most likable guy, he's sitting there telling you, and here's why you shouldn't like me. Each scene that he puts into this movie is not about one purpose. Mm-hmm.
1: It does multiple things at yep. a time. I keep thinking about that diner scene because whenever I was watching the end of the movie, um, Somerset looking into the box and seeing her head, I imagined whenever he was that close to her face – and that's what I thought of. That I, I really wonder if Fincher did that on purpose, really gave you those close-up shots of Somerset and Mills's wife, I forget her name, um, so close to each other, looking at each other's faces like that, seeing everything that she is. And that is, I think that's the last time
0: that you see her, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure on that one. I can't remember. I feel like it, like it is. Be. I want to believe it is. There's, there's definitely, you see her for the last time quite a while before you get the head in the box scene. Uh, there's there's a long period of time where Fincher is is making sure you forgot about her, that she's not a factor because any other director would have had her shots of her in peril or him showing up at the door. But all you that would kind realize too soon. Even if he just had her gone twenty minutes before,
1: you sure. would have realized too soon that's yep. her. But that's what I thought of whenever he looked in the box. I mm-hmm. immediately knew what it was because there's nothing else that it would be. Whenever he's yep. talking about how he envies his family. Yep. He, he, he doesn't tell you what's going on. I mean, he, he kind of does. But before that, he lays the seeds for you to realize mm-hmm. yourself. He's not treating you like you're an idiot. No. And that's what we always appreciate.
0: And, and that's my, my, fate, my, fa- blah, my favorite smart directors. The smartest directors, I think, are the ones that treat you like you can figure some things out. And some people, I'm sure, can't. I, I'm sure, but there's something about, and that's that's the thing. The more of these films you watch, the more you learn to think that way. You start to realize that film is a visual and, and auditory medium where sound and visuals can tell you just as much about story as dialogue or performance. Uh, one of the things in Dune uh, with, it's not something you could possibly notice the first time through, but with the score, it's laying out these different sets of instruments, one for the Atreides, one for the Harkonnens, one for really? the Geni- Bene Gesserits. And these these instruments will kind of push forward, and the music plays this tug of war, so that when Paul is being torn between two worlds you're getting this rising instrumentation from the Benny jesserit and then he starts to remember his father and then you you get this rising atreides kind of and it it, you can hear in the the score exactly what's happening internally in the character one of the challenges you know all of of all time with film is unlike a book you get no in inner monologue unless there's narration fincher does this perfectly fincher uses sound and visuals and light and and all of these things even characters uh, you know minor characters that a a character is with mills wife tells you a lot about mills the kind of woman that would fall in love with him tells you a lot about who he is at home and then you get that one little scene where they have somerset over for dinner mills is a completely different guy Mm -hmm. he's this just sweet Uh, you know, kind, romantic. And then that changes our mind about him every scene after that. And that's what's so important about Mm -hmm. tone. I mean, I I bet a lot of people don't even think
1: about it like that. They don't realize that it's not conscious, but Mm -hmm. having uh, just whatever builds the tone with the lighting and the music and everything that builds a feeling for you. And that just makes you feel more for these characters Mm -hmm. and this concept even if you don't realize it that's what it's doing and that that's fascinating that's so
0: cool brings us to edgar wright's scott pilgrim versus the world because in scott pilgrim versus the world you have a hyper stylized thank you hyper stylized (laughs) film i love it and at the the center of it and and one of the reasons i love this movie is in any other movie you would have scott pilgrim be very likable scott pilgrim is a jerk
1: we are Sex Bob-omb, and we're here to make you think about death and get sad
0: and stuff! <laughs> that's just like, Scott Pilgrim is my favorite character in that movie, there's something wrong with you. That's a red red flag. flag. He's an awful human being. But Edgar Wright does not care. Because what he's going to do through Scott Pilgrim and through all of these crazy colorful characters around him is do the same thing in a weird way that Fincher's doing. He's going to take a look at humanity. He's going to take a look at what makes us tick. And he's going to ask these very basic questions about what do we actually need to be successful in this world. And what he comes to, and it's so funny because in Scott Pilgrim, he even articulates it, is, is it love? No, it's self-respect. And it's the idea that you can't be a fully realized, fully uh, real person. You can't enter adulthood until you've gained self-respect. And everything along the way is is Scott trying to figure that out.
1: And that's that's cool too. You, you kind of forget he's 22.
0: Oh, yeah. He's even... Yeah.
1: Dating a high schooler at the beginning <laughs> because he's still in high no. school. Even if he's not, he's still
0: in high school. So, just for anybody that hasn't seen it, again, shut off the episode go and go watch, watch Scott it. Pilgrim he's versus so the World. Uh, it's essentially about this guy, Scott Pilgrim, not a very likable guy. He's <laughs> in a band. Uh, he's he's long awkward. graduated from high schooler, but for some reason, is dating a high schooler, and he uh, he falls in love with uh, the girl he should have been in love with all along, Ramona Flowers, who is not in high school but uh to to win her hand he has to battle her seven, seven. evil exes. Uh yeah, I know. That's a big connection there.
1: <laughs> Just there's seven, the number 7, that's yeah. what Kenny was going for.
0: So, after after the credits rolled on this, uh what did what do you think of Scott Pilgrim versus the World? I
1: liked it a lot.
0: Um like you know, my,
1: my preference for movies is something deeper and there wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of that in this movie, but I honestly what I really appreciate is kind of its simplicity. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it's a simple story about a <laughs> simple man, not so simple man. <laughs> it's to be decided. He's pretty simple. He's, yeah. Um. And honestly, I think what I appreciated most about it is how crazy it is. Yeah. This I is just, it's so fun. That's Edgar what I like Wright, about it.
0: Edgar Wright did Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz. Have you seen any of these? Um, the World's End. I know. Baby stuff Driver. About Shaun of the Dead. I've seen Baby Driver. Okay uh edgar wright it just delights in movie making uh fincher is a master filmmaker edgar wright just has fun with the medium you know fincher really wants to tell you something wants to explore something wants to create a piece of art wright wants to create a piece of art too but just one that is so referential to culture and life and video games and movies and he just he's like that kid in the sandbox whose imagination just knows no bounds. Fincher is like the grandpa trying to teach
1: you a lesson, but <laughs> Edgar Wright's the fun uncle. Yep. <laughs> I'm just going to keep like relating these directors to familial yep. things, yep. if you mind. I like mind. it. I
0: like it. <laughs> no, and, and you can feel it all through this, because at first the movie is is kind of, you know, it's it's got a sense of humor and it's got a style to it, but it's not until her first evil ex shows up uh, whatever his name is, Patel. Uh, Matthew Patel. Matthew Patel. He flies, he summons demons. That's <laughs> that, when you that realize- out of nowhere. Right? That's when you realize, wait a minute, this stuff is real? Because before that- It was dreams. It was dreams, and it just seemed like suddenly you realize, no, this stuff actually happens in this world. And it gets weirder and weirder and weirder from there to the point that you know a boss will explode into coins, a human <laughs> being will die explode into coins, and everybody's just like coins. Oh man, where's my record deal? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, it's just fun. It is. It's, it's just fun. fun. It's not one where you're you're going to get a huge amount of things out of it. No, other than it's a good time. It's not a, a, at it's the not a lesson.
1: Yeah. It's just, but then again, it is another look into another dude's mind. Yeah, yeah. this is what's going on in Edgar Wright's mind, and maybe he needs some counseling. But.
0: <laughs> what I love is that you can tell he loves the things that he's bringing in. There's, there's no mean-spirited anything towards video game culture or video game fans or movie fans. Or he, he has a, a deep love of anything that somebody geeks out over. He loves that people love stuff. And so there's nothing in here where it feels like he's poking fun at at different crowds. He really, <laughs> really loves the things that, that he's putting on screen, and he's putting it on screen for other people who love those things.
1: It was nice to see Jason Schwartzman again. Oh yeah. Looking a little older. Yeah. I honestly, I thought for a moment that that was Matthew Patel again. They look kind of similar <laughs> to me. But no, it once I got a closer look, yeah, that's, uh, that's my friend, uh, can't remember his name from the movie Max we Fisher. Last Max Fisher.
0: In my mind, this is a sequel to Rushmore, <laughs> uh, where Max Fisher has you know just devolved into. <laughs> this, into this is the sequel <laughs> we were talking about last week. Yeah, he's devolved into this just uh, maniacal villain uh, who this would manipulate everyone around him. He didn't
1: evolve. Yeah. Into something better, but he ended up being the tool that evolves this guy into something better. <laughs> yeah. It's the alternate universe. This is this is Rushmore's what if. Yes, I like that, um, and it, I like Michael Ceres. um Gosh, I don't know his name. Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I did, but I don't remember. The title it. It's weird.
0: Yeah, uh, this is one too. Edgar Wright is one who he just loves uh, playing. He loves, you know, Shaun of the Dead is, I love zombie movies. I'm going to make uh, the, the best zombie comedy <laughs> anybody could ever make. Hot Fuzz, I love 90s action movies. I'm just going to make the best 90s action movie send up possible. At, at World's End, I'm just going to make the weirdest alien movie I possibly can. He just, he loves genre. And, and Scott Pilgrim, I don't know if it's genre, but it's just different worlds. It's different. There's so much love for Nintendo here, even from the opening Universal logo, where it does the 8-bit uh, Universal theme and, like, the the digitized Planet Universal logo. He likes fun stuff. He does. puts a
1: lot of fun stuff in this. Yeah. He puts a lot of music stuff, video game stuff, yeah. um, movie stuff. It was kind of meta whenever he yeah. got to the Chris Evans part. Um, <laughs> a lot of the stuff was very movie stuff. They it, I liked it because they used actual doubles. Yeah. To do the double scene,
0: yeah, and that's just—I mean, it's—it's a, it's a certain type of smart yeah. to me. Yeah. Well, and that's something too, where you have all of these things happening, and it—it it goes to this idea that it's not that you can't have fun at the movies; it's that there is a there's still a smart and artful way to have fun at the movies, and and Edgar Wright's not doing something incredibly deep here. What Mm -mm. he's doing is something just as meticulous as what Fincher does. Wright is so in control of his camera. He's so in control of character and visuals and color and all of these things that he is creating something that's going to, in every single scene, make you feel a very specific way. He wants you to hate Scott Pilgrim, but only enough that you can still be happy when he achieves his happy ending. You only hate him just enough... To feel what the other characters are feeling so that when he works through that and he realizes what a jerk he's been, you can have that sigh of relief and be like, yeah, good job, Scott.
1: If that was that um Facebook dude, mm-hmm. Zuckerberg, if that yeah. was Zuckerberg, you wouldn't, you wouldn't no. want him. She would deserve better. She really would yeah. deserve better. And you know, I honestly did, I thought it would go to a thing where... Scott Pilgrim just couldn't appreciate what he already had at the mm-hmm. beginning. And I really thought he was going to end up with... Um, Knives. Knives. Mm-hmm. What a name. Knives Chow. Knives Chow. Chow Knives. love it. Yeah. But no, he does end up with her. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how I feel about that.
0: It's, it's one of those things I... Maybe I just don't understand it. I enjoy movies, and both of these movies do this, that end at a place where you feel the story has resolved, but that there's more story. Uh, Mills being put into the police car and Somerset sort of uh, alluding to the fact that maybe he won't retire. What happens next in that universe? What happens to Mills? What happens to Somerset? Uh, how do how does their view of the world change? You know, Edgar Wright and Scott Pilgrim. How what happens at the end of Scott Pilgrim versus the World. That's a great Do question. He I and tell. Ramona Flowers <laughs> just go off. And we we discuss the same thing with Max Fisher and Rushmore. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's what happens next. And I love movies that that not only leave you with certain feelings and having had a certain experience, but there's a world that feels like it's still lived in enough that it's going to keep going after you've exited.
1: And that's important. It makes it feel more real, even yeah. with how Cartoonish Scott Pilgrim is. I keep thinking about Chris Evans' eyebrows after that experience <laughs> and how yep. cartoonish they were. Yep. I really appreciate those eyebrows used in that way. Yeah,
0: I I love Scott's. Uh, and it's the way he's written, but it's his sort of his just knowing winks to camera where he knows exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> um, and it's not even. It's probably not even like a fourth wall thing. No. He just he, he's just a nerd that knows yeah. movies and plot and stuff. But just just the smarmy arrogance he has when he introduces the idea of could you do a thingy on that thingy? You mean, <laughs> could I do a grind on that rail? And and Chris Evans's character even says like, "No, that's suicide or whatever." He says, like, "All right, well, it you know, if you're scared, and there's a lot of girls watching. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then the same thing with uh, the vegan and the the milk and everything, where it just he's he's in control of his own story. And to so go on a slightly deeper level. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like Max
1: Fisher in the way Mm -hmm. that I think he's becoming more of himself. Mm -hmm. He's not defeating these exes by normal means. He's doing them how he would do them. And that's probably one issue that he had uh, at the beginning of the movie. He's not dating this girl because he really feels with her. He's just doing it because he wants other people to have a good opinion of him. And so... By finding this perfect girl of his and having to defeat her seven evil exes in his own way, he's already becoming more of himself. Yeah, I love how they did the one up stuff. Yeah, if he didn't have that one up, that would have been the end. Yeah, but he he feels
0: he finds the right sword. It's nice how they lead you to believing that love. I love that twist. I love the idea that because in every other movie, love is the answer, love is all you need. And it's all he really needs to do is find true love. No. And then you take that lesson, and he's almost commenting on that entire genre of films where it's you just need to fall in love. You just need your one true love. Princesses and princes, and you just got to find the right guy or girl. And this is one of the very, very few movies that says, no, your answer isn't in somebody else completing you. Mm -hmm. You've got to complete yourself. And then you can have healthy relationships with other people. And what's the most fundamental struggle that you have moving from you know adolescence to adulthood? It's that idea of you, you get in this mindset that other people are gonna make me me. And then you have to get to a place, and it's hard and it takes time, but you have to get to a place where you realize, no, I'm me. And I need to surround myself with people that make me more me rather than a mm. different me. That's the depth of it. It's this a movie. lesson.
1: That is the deep yeah. part of it. It's, I mean, his his biggest issue, the reason why he's a jerk, like everyone says he is, is
0: because he's just not being himself. He's shallow. He's just he's he's everything that he thinks he should be, right? Instead and of what what he is. That's
1: fascinating. I really. I really didn't. I honestly, I was pleasantly surprised because I really thought it was just going to be love is the answer. This is how it goes. Yeah. But it gives us something much deeper, which yeah. is unexpected. It's not super deep, but it's it's deeper than what you expect. Yeah. And I wonder if that's why this movie is so popular or if it's just because it's all the surface level pop culture stuff.
0: I, uh, you know, I think the surface level entertainment value is a great entry point. I don't know that for a casual film fan you can throw something like seven at them, and expect them to come out having realized <laughs> something about themselves. Um, you know, but but you you give them something that that invites them in and makes them feel safe, and they're laughing and all this sort of stuff. Then you sneak in some depth. Now you're starting to to speak to. Uh, a, a group of people that's going to respond in a way that they see themselves in this. And that's very telling of Edgar Wright himself. Mm-hmm. He He's the fun college partier guy, but he's also the
1: one that has something deeper than smashing a beer can into his forehead. Yeah. He, he has something to
0: say every now and then. Yeah. And that's where, uh, you know, going back to Rushmore, the way Max Fisher writes plays and things like that always feels like a, a Edgar Wright style filmmaker to me. If if Max Fisher grew up and became a filmmaker, he'd be Edgar Wright. He'd be like Edgar Wright because he's playing in all of these uh, these cliches and these in these different genres. But he's just having fun with them and seeing what he can bring out of what already exists. Um and it just it, it, there's there's something fun about that, um, as, especially for movie fans.
1: That's the biggest compliment that I have about this movie. It's just so fun. Yeah. I I admit that I get a little picky mm-hmm. about my movies because I you know like I said two times already I do like the deeper stuff, mm-hmm. but um, writers directors sorry like Edgar Wright remind me that it doesn't have to be so deep. You can just have fun. You don't have to be like those. Angry basement film reviewers on IMDb. You can yeah. just you can you can lighten up a bit, yeah. bud.
0: Yeah, and this this for me is a, a palate cleanser movie. It's one of those things where you've just you've eaten something really savory a really savory meal, and this is just that dessert. It's that thing that it's got that you know hint of lemon and some sugar, and it just you know there's there's still more to it than than that. But it it can it can be its own thing. I would be fascinated to. Watch or listen to David
1: Fincher and Edgar Wright have a conversation about ah, that life. would actually that'd be really cool.
0: Uh, I'm sure they would hit it. I off. don't want
1: them to make a movie together. No, no, that no, would be no, a no. mess. Oh, yeah.
0: But I I guarantee you though they probably have very similar processes where when they when they come to a film because again especially Baby Driver is probably a better example of this. But you watch something like Baby Driver and to the beat of music. It is so measured and, and meticulously made to match music and to to create a certain feel. Um, I, I think Fincher and Wright are two very similar filmmakers. They have crazy different worldviews. They have very different interests. But when it comes to the actual art of movie making, it's like they're two of the best.
1: It's like art is an explosion versus art is something that lasts. Yes.
0: Well, and that's so. Next week. Uh, the the movies that I'm giving you is Grand Budapest Hotel, okay, and that's a Wes Anderson movie. Now Rushmore was one of his early ones. Grand Budapest is one of his most recent. When did so that come I'm out? I'm doing a little bit of a flip on you from the Fincher. It came out I want to say 2018 or 19, not entirely oh, wow. sure. As we've proven, I'm not the best with movie years. No, you're really not. Clearly, you are. Uh, but well, I I just I just look at it. I forget to. But Grand <laughs> Budapest Hotel has an ensemble cast to beat all ensemble casts. Every actor is in this movie. This movie stars two. everyone. Oh, yeah. This movie stars like 30 people. Uh, but <laughs> but it is, it is one of Wes Anderson's best. And then the other movie I'm going to give you is The Revenant. And The Revenant right. stars Leonardo DiCaprio and, um, oh, what's his name that played Bane in Venom? Tom uh, Hardy? Tom Hardy. And it's about Bane and venom. Uh, Bane and venom. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's about this uh, this guy uh, in the I believe uh, is it 1700s? I forget. He's left in the wilderness to die, and uh, he he basically has to survive and scrape his way back to life to track down the guy that left him for dead. It's a it's a Ooh. kind of at its core a very simple revenge tale. But it's so masterfully done. those are fascinating
1: done. because revenge itself is a fascinating concept. Yep. People lose all their meaning in life. And so yep. the only meaning that they can find, however, they be- were betrayed, it's, it's revenge. Yeah. And if you get deeper about it, revenge is not just killing the person that hurt you sometimes it's being better than them and so revenge is a very versatile topic and that's why i'm so excited for this
0: yeah and revenant came out in 2015 and Mm. it was a it was up for best picture uh and Graham budapest was also up for best picture but um the revenant is by a director named alejandro uh and he's incredible Uh, He is definitely one you will be watching more movies from as we go. (sighs) I'm holding you to that. Yes. If I don't like it next week, that's on you. I really went back and forth as to whether this was the movie I was going to give you of his because he has some other uh, crazy ones. Uh, Probably the next one I'll have you watch of his is uh, Birdman. With Michael oh, Keaton, I, I I remember being very interested in the trailers when that was coming out. Birdman is filmed to appear as if it's one long continuous shot, the entire movie, really? and it's done very well. Now it's it's carefully hidden with I I think there there's several different, but it's still really long takes. But uh, it's it's an incredible movie too. When did Birdman come out? Um, that's a great question because I know the thing about Michael Keaton
1: being winged people all the time. Batman, uh, that Vulture. was in 2014,
0: so That's that was a year Vulture. before Red Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. It was way before Vulture. That was the funny thing about him being cast for Vulture. Not only did he play Batman in 89, which this is essentially the plot of Birdman is uh, there's this aging actor who played this character Birdman in two movies, <laughs> and decades later they have talked him out of uh, superhero retirement to do a Birdman 3 just like people had always been trying to talk Keaton out of retirement to do a Batman 3. Did they,
1: did they cast him on purpose, or they make the movie about Not on,
0: him? I, I don't think on purpose, but just That's sort just of so woven meta. all together. It's just so meta. I don't, it's one of those, I don't know which which one came first, but it's it's very meta, idea. and they really yeah. lean into the it. The chicken or the bird. Um, but uh, the yes, bird and I mean, then for him to go on and get cast as Vulture was particularly funny. But yeah, you're gonna watch uh, Grand Budapest Hotel and The Revenant. These are very, very different movies.
1: You like doing um, that to me.
0: I do. Don't look for for some grand connection in them. The big connection with these two movies is again, they're just masterfully numbers made. Numbers again? Is it numbers? It is not numbers. I bet it's numbers. They were both up for best picture. <laughs> they're they're masterfully made. Very very different. Uh, mm-hmm. Grand Budapest Hotel is much more in the vein of Rushmore and Scott Pilgrim, whereas Revenant is is more in the vein of of Seven and Social Network. Colorful versus gritty. Yeah. Again. Oh, Revenant is rough i love that it is a grittiness. violent and rough gritty ride that's the it's, only reason i kept watching it's, the Walking dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh revenant revenant's a tough watch and it's based on a true story surprisingly um oh. there, not not to the letter but there really was a guy that was left for dead and should have died but scraped his way back and got his revenge and that's what this is based on grand budapest hotel not based on a true story but just as much fun so let's talk Dune. Doom.
1: Uh, Dune
0: Doom tells the story of House Atreides and House Harkonnen, and these are two warring houses in the distant, distant future. At the Sci-fi, beginning of the Game movie, Thrones, yeah. yeah. At the beginning, it says year 10,191, but it's actually ten thousand years after today's age. And so it's actually 20,000 years later. It's complicated. Anyway, it exists in this future where there was uh, an AI uprising and humanity put it down and basically outlawed all computers and AI, anything. Oh. That's why the technology is so analog. That's really cool. Yeah, they don't mention it in the movie, which I really wish they would have because I love that detail, but that's okay. Uh, but House Atreides and House Harkonnen, House Harkonnen is in charge of this desert planet, Arrakis, where they mine this spice. Until they aren't. Uh, until they aren't. The the emperor uh, withdraws them and sends House Atreides there. But turns out the emperor did that because he was jealous of the power they were getting, the Harkonnens through wealth, and the Atreides through just people loved them. And so he wants to pit these two houses against each other so they tear each other apart. That way he doesn't have anybody threatening his control. So
1: it only happens a few days apart, right? What? Like um, Harkonnen loses the right to the salt planet. No, it, this planet this then... is
0: this is quite a few months. Okay, but um,
1: Dave Batista, I thought he said something about it being so soon after. I don't know. It
0: is, but there's there's like a four week period of time from the time Duncan leaves uh, to go to, and Paul wants to go with him. There's four weeks before then they go, but it's you know only oh. a few minutes of screen time. It it takes place over a, a little stretch of time. Uh, but the, the main character is Paul, and Paul is this poor 15-year-old kid stuck in the middle of all kinds of – He's only 15? Of, yes, I believe so. Uh, he's stuck in the middle of all these different worlds where uh, he's, he's a part of House Atreides, um, but they are related uh, to the Harkonnens. And he also has been raised uh, and was born to a Bene Dreseret mother. And the Bene Gesserit are these weird mystical witches, witches, essentially. That's what they call her. Yeah, the witch. uh, Yeah, and and he's been born essentially into this order that only has daughters. Uh, But because he's been born as a male, there's this prophecy because prophecy. she could choose? uh, Yes, so the Bene Gesserit can choose what kind of – what the gender is of their children. That's why they always choose female. There is a male in prophecy, and Jessica chose when she got pregnant – for him to be male, that's why the head Benny Gesserit was so mad at her.
1: Because she thought she's like arrogant, sort of. Yes, because she's thinking one.
0: right, and that's why you know she's up for killing Paul. But we're talking way too much about plot. I apologize. Um, like, it's it's a really deep kind of story. It's a lot of lore. Very interesting I lore.
1: Think my favorite thing about it is how it world builds. Yeah, I did have a little problem with it being slow towards the middle to the end. It was getting a little. Too slow for me, but overall I loved it, and it really it did bring a, a bunch of these cool actors together. I mean, this dude's dad was Oscar Isaac. <laughs> yeah. that's cool. And it was almost kind of meta if you think about it in terms of superhero movies. Oscar Isaac played um Apocalypse, mm-hmm. and his right hand man was and Thanos. And he's about to play Moon
0: Knight. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh,
1: that's cool. Yeah, that'll, that'll be good.
0: But yeah, his right hand man, <clears throat> the General Gurney. Is Thanos and Dave Bautista's in there? Drax. Uh-huh. So you, you have like Oscar Isaac from Star Wars and X Men. You have the um, uh, the scientist from Thor plays uh, Dr. Selvig. Uh, plays Baron Harkonnen in a lot of prosthetics. Oh yeah, <laughs> really? Yep. yep. Wow. Yep. I I, uh, I never would have known. Yeah, MJ from Spider Man. MJ in from Spider Man. Um.
1: Just Aquaman's in this. Aquaman, you know. yeah. Yeah,
0: it's 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 a who's who of comic book actors. I love it
1: because for once, I'm I don't know a lot of actors very well. I'm getting to know them thanks mm. to you. But it's cool to know all these actors. Yeah. And then Timothy Chalamet. I don't know what he was in, but I know him. I know of him.
0: I don't know that you've seen him in anything, but he's been in a lot of films. Uh he's probably twenty-two or twenty-three. He looks much younger than he is. And they never say that Paul is fifteen. I think that's a book detail. Uh it's just it's it's clear he's supposed to be young. Uh he's he's not yet ascended to manhood or whatever. God, this poor kid. <laughs> yeah. Um Dune's really fascinating because the book sets out to uh sort of undo the the kind of savior narrative in stories. Because even in this one, while Paul is being set up to be this messiah character, he's terrified of it. And his visions show him this, this war sweeping across the entire universe in his name. And it terrifies him. So while it is a messianic story, it's a messy messianic story. Uh, he's there. Yeah. story. These people believe he's there to save them. But really, he's going to bring about untold amounts of destruction. Is that a fact? Yes. Uh, I mean, it it turns out to be. And and so he knows it, and it's very terrifying to him. And that's really that last fight in the movie, that's what it's about. Is he going to let it go and not take on that fate? Because the only way to not become that thing is to die. Or is he going to choose to live and become this this Messiah figure, and that's what he's locking into there at the end is is what he wants to do. At
1: first thought, I don't like Paul very much. (laughs) It's just he's just kind of boring to me. Mm -hmm. He feels very (laughs) Cersei to me, um, with how he's presented. Nothing against Timothy Chalamet, Mm -hmm. but he was a pretty dry character. But I almost feel like uh, on second thought, that's the point. Mm -hmm. He's supposed to be pretty simple and well put together and almost perfect in some ways because they're setting him up to be this sort of messiah character that's actually not the messiah Mm -hmm. and so of course but i don't know if that's intentional it just feels like it could be
0: i think a lot of the things you could level against this movie are because it's a part one paul has to be he has to be sort of um pre free will or pre-independence because he has to take hold of that independence at the end of part one and that way he can be this independent thinking feeling person who makes his own decisions and finds his own autonomy in part 2. And so that's that's one of the downsides. Ooh, Similar it's only to like, half a movie. It's only half a movie. Similar to like Fellowship of the Ring, you can't have Frodo getting to a place by the end of Fellowship of the Ring where he's fully hero or Samwise or anything. He has to show flashes of it but he's still got movies where where that's where that happens. I see a lot of that in very long mm-hmm.
1: series. Um I've been watching a lot of Naruto still mm-hmm. to point out something in that Naruto himself, he all of his most of his development is in the first Naruto, mm-hmm. not Shippuden, the second series. Um in the and it's like little things mm-hmm. from there on it's not there's not much going on with them at that point it's just Ninja Jesus <laughs> <laughs> Ninja Jesus it gets kind of boring in that series yeah. but yeah I, like in Naruto I see a lot of stuff like that
0: what's interesting to me because this like I said this is the fifth time I've watched it this is quickly becoming probably my favorite movie of the year the first time I watched it I had a very similar reaction that you did I thought it was a little too slow I wasn't too into Paul I still recognize it was a really good movie and uh-huh. I love the world building it's so unique the weird thing is, every time I watch this, it, the pace is faster. So the first time I watched it, it felt too slow. By now, I feel like it's perfect. The, mm. the It just clips along for me. And I think it's because the more I find out about the story or the more I recognize it's happening, because a lot can happen in just one line of dialogue in this movie. And the more that that I've watched it, the more I realize is going on, so in those moments where it feels slow after multiple watches, I'm realizing, oh no, this scene that that felt boring the first time, there's like six different things happening,
1: and you already know what's gonna happen next, so yeah. you know you can expect that and not be bored with what's currently yeah. going on, yeah. and I like that. I like it whenever you can rewatch and just.
0: Get more out of it, and especially just just down <laughs> to the I, when you said world building. I love the costumes and the oh my the, gosh, the ships it's so and in depth. It, it it's deep feels, in its own way. You can feel the culture with each. Clint and I talked about and that I think a, that's a lot the when strongest we talked about point Dune. of Dune.
1: Yeah, I think it's the strongest point of it. Just it feels lived in yeah that's a good term it feels like it just has existed for ten thousand years and it
0: has i'm excited for part two because no, so much of this movie is introduction to lower houses uh the, the <laughs> central conflict two doesn't have to do that and 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 the second part this is all based on the first dune book there's six but the first two movies are basically the first book and oh. the second half of the book gets weird uh, there's some weird stuff in this part that that's on screen. Second part gets super weird. And I can't wait to see how uh, the director does that. But at the same time, he doesn't have all of the setup and the, the things to build in. Because now you have an understanding of the world and Spice and a lot of the, the factions. So they can just get to the weird stuff without having to take a lot of time to explain yeah. it.
1: And this is the first time that I'll compliment this. But he just put some really random out of place stuff in there. Yeah. Like that dog whenever he's meeting with the witch. Like that back brace and this dude flying. You have no idea why it's there. But just those little things that just come out of nowhere and they don't explain it.
0: It just feels more real. Yeah. The the creature, the black creature, uh, the, the almost alien looking thing. Because there are no aliens in Dunes. And so people saw that and they've been theorizing that that's Dr. Yue's wife. That um, that he says they'll take her apart, uh, the idea oh. being they did take her apart and they turned her into this just genetic monstrosity. Oh, I hate that. Um, <laughs> and so that's just a fan theory, but it's, it's such a random thing that it either is going to come back in part two or the rumor is that the first cut of this movie was four hours uh, that he chopped down to two and a half. And so I would almost guarantee a director's cut's going to hit at this thing. Oh, I, uh, I hate that wait. idea.
1: That, that brings me to back to Full Metal Alchemist. In episode <laughs> three of Full Metal Alchemist, this dude doesn't want to lose his uh, license spoiler alert. So what he does is he transmutes his daughter and his dog together, and it becomes this dog with human girl hair and <sighs> that talks in this really deep, eerie voice, and it's so messed up. It made me stop watching that. It just mess with it too much and if that's the case with that oh jeez I'm not going to stop watching it but that's so disturbing now what did you think of the effects in this movie oh my god (laughs) just so well done it didn't look like CGI at any point no it didn't look like it was computer generated at all not even the worms the worms were so detailed you saw it up close going up uh, towards the end whenever he first sees one of the worms and that's a small worm by the way yeah. that's one of the very small worms but you saw all little sort of cracks and it
0: it's just so yeah. so real well and that's here soon uh one of your assignments is going to be blade runner 2049 and he did that as you well that. And yes i do i love that movie uh that was one of clinton i think clinton i both that was our movie oh yeah, yeah i remember that you put it in your 18 or something like that Um, Definitely one of our movies of the decade. But he did that movie too. And the effects are just as they look so real. They don't look practical model. They don't look CG. They just look real. There's maybe a handful of things in this where you can tell it's CG. Uh Uh, Just a few of the – when it pulls back and there's a really big crowd shot, um, every now and then you can tell, oh, okay, they didn't quite put a dust filter or a sand filter rolling across there like Mm. they should have but nothing yeah, you know, I've watched this movie five times. <laughs> you noticed stupid It's really things. impressive to think about the helicopters. Even I love.
1: They those. look so real. Yeah, they just do. They're so and great. And even so, do the worms? Um, I don't know what it is. It's like they increase the resolution on CGI or something, and so it's <laughs> like you can see every detail of this worm, even from so high above. Yeah. You see all the teeth, and those worms are so cool. Yeah.
0: Well, and for quite a while now, CG has been capable of doing everything photoreal. The trick is getting it to have the right lighting, and the right physics, and the right weight, and and all of these things that your eye picks up on and instantly reads as fake. Even if it looks real, you can tell it didn't quite move right, or it didn't quite land right, or it just wasn't lit like the rest of the background. Uh, And those are kind of the the things that clue you into the fact that something's CG. CG is used so often in films now, half the time (laughs) you don't even notice it. They'll put stuff in the background, or erase a background, or erase stuff, You'll never know they were there. What I'm really curious about is how they end, end up um, being able to attach to the worms as they're riding.
1: How do they do that? They're so, crazy. So,
0: you know when, uh, right before, spoiler, the doctor is stabbed, the spray of water, mm-hmm. and she's got the two hooks out. Mm-hmm. And she puts the thumper off to the side. So, what they do, similar to when the worm came up and faces Paul, you know how it goes to launch back into the ground, but it's above ground? Yes. That's when they hook on, and so they put the thumper off to the side. Oh, to distract it. To distract and bring it over there, so that as it exits, they can attach. I love how one. they build up just the way that these people live. Yeah,
1: it's so smart. It feels like nothing you could ever do, but under yeah. the idea that they evolved to be like this, it just makes sense. I
0: can't. I can't wait to see how he envisions their underground cities, because they have to have oh, technology and stuff so to cool. make those suits. And they they actually you know I mean clearly have more uh, advanced technology than yes. us in some ways. And and so I'm I'm curious what the visuals there are. I love the daggers, the Chris daggers oh that are made God. from the the How do worm you get a teeth? teeth. How do you get a worm tooth? I guess just shed in the desert. I don't think they actually. I'd have to I'd have to look that one up. Maybe when they're riding them, they just reach down. But that seems. I imagine those foolish. worms
1: die eventually, so they to sure. skeleton with the yeah. teeth still
0: And there would be young ones too. They grow up to. I think they said 400 meters, 1200 mm-hmm. feet, but you know, those are the big ones. I love the size oh. of it. You
1: have that giant sand crawler type thing yeah. to get the uh, spice, but then you have the worm like yep. five times as big as that. Yeah. And that's only the front of its face. Yeah, That is so cool. Yeah. So um, one thing you talked about to me, how Star Wars took inspiration from mm-hmm. uh, Dune mm-hmm. with the Tatooine and stuff. Have you ever played the old Jedi Knight, Jedi Academy game? Long time ago. I like that game a lot, first mm-hmm. of all. I don't Second of all, it very well. they have a few Tatooine missions mm-hmm. and one of them is you're on your way to somewhere to do one type of mission but you actually crash in Tatooine, uh just in the sand somewhere mm-hmm. and you have to jump rock to rock. Mm. Mm-hmm. And piece of technology to piece of technology mm-hmm. to avoid this giant sandworm that's going to eat you if you yeah. touch the sand because it senses your vibrations. Yeah. And that's really on the nose yeah. watching this movie now.
0: Well, and there's a movie, I don't know if you've ever seen it from the, uh, was it from the 90s called Tremors? It's a great movie with I've Kevin of Bacon. It, yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's it's essentially smaller sandworms in in the desert in Nevada or something. Uh, but it's, it's fun. It's good fun. But Dune has inspired i mean if if there's a science fiction movie or a fantasy movie today it's it's borrowed something from frank herbert's dune all the world building tickles all my
1: funny bones kenny i just i love it i love the whole clan faction thing i love these wars and these fights and just all this mystical stuff that they involve in there too it's just it's all sorts of just Cool, it almost yeah. reminds me of how, um, in Star Wars, a lot of things are interconnected, mm-hmm. but in Star Trek, you just have these varying races that are completely different from mm-hmm. each other that have no interaction at all, but they're all just their own kind of weird. That's yeah. what it kind of reminds me of. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's something where I, I'm i excited because certain big characters die off that are quite a shock, but then God, other really? characters, yeah, really, but uh, then are other characters yet? aren't. We are, uh, I don't want to spoil okay. But uh, the thing I was going to say is there's other characters that are just mentioned that have not been introduced because then in the second movie, they have some big name actors they can still roll out. The emperor has not been introduced. The baron has another son that's essentially just like Paul, but but a lot of just kind of Paul's the anti-Paul that that goes on a hunt for Paul and and they have a rivalry. Uh, So those are two big characters that – uh you know, the Emperor is barely mentioned, uh the other son isn't even mentioned. Uh but those will both play quite a role in the How next one.
1: Would you one. cast as those characters?
0: Oh my goodness. <laughs> the Emperor you could go in so many different ways, but uh Mads Mickelson, who played um Hannibal Lecter on the Hannibal Lecter series, mm. uh he was the villain in Doctor Strange. He played uh Cassius or or whatever oh, his Cassinius. name was. Celius. Uh, such a <laughs> a weird but cool actor. I didn't know this actor. Um he would he would be my emperor. Uh the actually the actor I would cast as the anti Paul is the guy who played Druig. Um oh. in Eternals. Interesting. Um because he has it just it's it's somebody young, it's somebody that's that's kind of the young uh upcoming son in the house in House Harkonnen, but is uh, just a darker version of that. And I could really see that guy playing him. Uh, so other things they didn't mention in this one. Jessica, who is Paul's mother, is actually the Baron's daughter. Um, and so there's there's other familial connections there that are really weird. Baron Harkonnen. Oh. Yeah. His daughter is Jessica. Um, Interesting. Who has, yeah. So anyway, it's just there's, there's some very strange stuff. Now, they didn't mention that at all. Uh, That may be because they're just eliminating that detail. It feels a little small world. Uh, But we'll see. We'll see what they do in part two. Why are all the Harkonnens albino?
1: Why are the Harkonnens albino? Because
0: they live on such a dark world with no sunlight coming through.
1: Oh, so they're not actually just super white aliens. They're just
0: pasty dudes. Yeah. (laughs) There's that shot of uh, Getty Prime or whatever their planet is called where it's just that dark, thick atmosphere, green noxious air. (laughs) Yep.
1: Yeah. Wow, that is fascinating. So, they all come from humans. And mm-hmm. so I guess the... Fir, fir, the Fremen? Fremen? Mm-hmm.
0: I guess they are just a group of humans that... Yeah, they basically just went out and colonized. It, until they had the spice, travel over those great distances was very, very time-consuming. That's why spice is so valuable, because it can basically create that wormhole situation in that tubular ship that can take them from one spot to the next instantaneously. And so breathing it in over the... You know, course of however long mm-hmm. they had to evolve, kind of made them have those blue eyes, or mm-hmm. do they
1: sprinkle it on their tacos? And
0: <laughs> no, it's <Okay>. just <laughs> you know when you breathe it for so long. That's why even in the visions of the the future, Paul has blue eyes, and when he sees his his baby sister in the one vision, she has blue eyes. Oh, do you see her in that? Yeah, well that's that's that one shot of his mom when he's having the vision when he tells her she's pregnant, where he sees her in the desert with with uh, holding the baby with blue eyes. I don't think I
1: watched that. I mean, I, I did, but I don't remember it at all. Okay. It's weird. It was a small detail. So, Man, the sister is super. Just wait to you get to part two. Oh, I'm excited, so Kenny. so weird. I'm excited. It's like um the MCU thing, how they have to kind of slowly introduce you to things on the first mm-hmm. movie, but the second one, they go all in on it. Yep. Yep. I'm excited. All right, well,
0: I, I was excited about this episode. <sighs> I think it was good. It, uh, so I'm going to give you Grand Budapest. I'm going to give you Revenant. And then we will have our third episode of, of Sin Apprentice.
1: We gave them a very nice treat this week with an
0: extra movie yeah, to talk we about. we did. Just good fun. Welcome. And next week we'll talk about, our next episode we'll talk about Revenant, Grand Budapest, and we'll talk about Jodorowsky's Dune because uh, I'm going to have you watch that as well. Uh, I think excited. I have that on Blu-ray. I think I have a physical copy I can give you. I'm excited. So, good stuff. Love it. All right. I'm, well, mm. thank you all for listening. This has been Sin Apprentice <clears throat> episode two. Uh, we will be back, I think, in two weeks. And Likely. this this week coming up, Clint and I are talking about. Well, I guess by the time you hear this, you've already heard us on that episode. I think our next episode is an animation episode with oh. Wolfwalkers, Wolf House, and April in the Extraordinary World, if we stick to that idea. Sometimes we get bored and we throw other movies in. I know we want to talk about Titan and some other uh, things that have popped up this year. You so, guys
1: are just, you can go all in with all the all weird the movies yeah, we you never hear about. All over the place. I love it.
0: We like weird. You guys have good taste. Thank you. In my we opinion, we try. We try. All right. So thank you as always for listening. Uh, shoot us a message. Let us know if you're uh, enjoying the episodes. Uh, Perfectly. Always that's a bird. Messenger <laughs> bird. <laughs> yeah. Always glad to uh, to read your feedback. And uh, I know Anthony is is curious yes, if, if he's I mean, doing a good job. I keep telling him he is. But I'm not
1: insecure. Whatever. Yeah. All
0: right. <laughs> so uh, be good. Go watch Dune. Revisit seven, revisit Scott Pilgrim, or watch him if you haven't watched him, you heathens. Seriously. Well you guys have a good week and we will be back soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>